Good morning. It's good to be here. If you have your Bibles, would you please open to John chapter 11. The Gospel of John chapter 11 will begin from verse 45. But before I start reading, I want to uh, give some, just an intro. That we are in this new series called The Road to the Cross. The Road to the Cross. In this eight-week series, we'll take us from our passage today in John chapter 11, at the very end of John 11, to the end of John chapter 12. And a little bit of background uh, for our passage today. In John 11, prior to our passage, we read about Jesus going to the village of Bethany where his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived. When Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to this region of Judea where Bethany is located, the disciples question Jesus about his decision to go there. In verse 8, John 11, verse 8, it says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? It's like, you're kidding, Jesus. You're gonna, they're trying to kill you, and you want to go there again? Jesus tells his disciples that they are going there because their friend Lazarus has died. So when they go there, they arrive in Bethany, they see Lazarus' sister, Martha, and Mary. Then they go to the tomb where Lazarus' body is laid. Now, the, the tomb in those days is not like, you know, a, a plot in the ground kind of thing, but it's more like a cave. And then there was a stone that blocked the entrance to this cave. So Jesus tells the people to remove the stone that covers the entrance of the cave. It's really a large stone. So he asks them to remove the stone over the entrance. Then Jesus prays to Father God. And then it says that Jesus calls out with a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, I had heard back long ago, too, if he didn't say Lazarus and he said, come forth, who knows how many people might have come forth. But he says, Lazarus, come forth. Then John 11, verse 44 says, The man, Lazarus, who had died, came forth. He was bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. So he looked like a mummy in a sense. And Jesus said to the people, Unbind him and let him go. Imagine what the situation was. A great, great miracle. A man is resurrected from the dead. And imagine if you were there. Imagine if you had witnessed this with your own eyes. What would you have felt? What would you have said? What would you have done? What would you have thought about Jesus, this guy who, who did this miracle of healing? What would you have thought about Jesus? Okay, let's read about what happens next. We're going to read again from John 11, verse 45, to the end of the chapter. As I read through this, I'm going to read in the New American Standard Bible. Notice as I read, there's the word therefore listed a few times. Therefore meaning that people are responding to something that had happened. Okay, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he, Jesus, had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Verse 47, Therefore, 
the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into the city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were, speaking to, so, so they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Okay, please join me in prayer. We thank you, Father God, for this time. We just lift this time up to you. We ask, Lord, that you will just speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you will just guide me as I share the things that you've placed on my heart. And I pray, God, that, that what we hear, what we hear from your word especially will just impact our lives, that will help us to know you more and to be the people that you desire us to be. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1973, not long after I graduated from Venice High School, in the summer before I started college at Long Beach State, I remember being at this part-time job that I had. I had this job for maybe like a year or more, and I worked at this fast food place called Mago's. Now, some of you know Mago's, and you already you start getting uh, hungry for eating certain things. Mago's was famous for things like the avocado chashu burger, teriyaki sukiyaki plates with fried rice, and avocado teriyaki burgers. We also served tacos and banana splits. <laughs> so I was working at this place for about a year, and there was a guy there who also worked there who was probably a couple years older than me, who, was, who I knew was a student at Long Beach State. I knew he had lived in Long Beach and had dormed at the university. So after work one day, in trying to get information before I started going to the school, before I started college, I asked him about living in Long Beach and about his experiences dorming there. I don't remember much of what he told me. He might have talked to me a little bit about living there, but I do remember for sure that he pulled out this yellow booklet that looked something like this. He pulled out a yellow booklet and asked me, 
have you heard the four spiritual laws? For those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Four Spiritual Laws is a booklet put out by Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew, that gives an explanation of the gospel. It begins by saying, it tells you about how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Then it tells about how we're separated from God because of our sin and how through our own efforts, we still fall short in making things right with God. We can't do it on our own. Then it explains that it's only through Jesus Christ, through his life and the sacrifice of his life by dying on the cross, that he is like a bridge that makes it possible for people to have a restored, renewed relationship with God. And then it says that we must individually receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior in order to know and experience the love and plan that God has for our lives. So my friend at work, went through this booklet with me and shared those different points. At the end of the booklet, it asks, um, as you read through it, it asks if you want to pray a prayer to receive Jesus Christ into your life so that you can have your sins forgiven and you can have a restored relationship with God. So my friend asked me if I wanted to pray the prayer at the end of the booklet, and I said no. Okay, Looking back, I don't remember exactly why I didn't say no. Um, maybe it was because not growing up in a Christian family, all this information was new to me, too new to make a commitment like that. But I think what, I, what it really might have come down to was that I had my own plans for my life. And as I thought about my own plans, Jesus was not on the radar as part of those plans, at least not yet. For the people we read about in our passage today, in a sense, they were faced with the same question. What were they going to do about Jesus? For some of these people, they might have already heard um, about what Jesus said about himself. They might have heard Jesus say things like, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. They might remember him saying that he's the bread of life or the light of the world or that he's the good shepherd or that he is the Christ. They might have also remembered um, Jesus uh, doing things. They might have heard or, or saw or heard him uh, do things, such as turning water into wine, or how he healed a royal official's son, or, or how he healed a sick man at the pool of Bethesda, or how he fed over 5,000 people, or, or how he healed a man born blind. Even after they heard or saw the things that Jesus did, they were still faced with the question of what were they going to do about Jesus? Even prior to the events in our chapter today, some of the people believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent from God. Others believed that he was not from God, that he was not from God, that he was a liar, a heretic, and so they wanted to kill him. After Jesus does another miracle by raising Lazarus from the dead, what will the people do now? Will those who didn't yet believe in Jesus change their minds and opinions of him? How do the people respond? Okay, the first point. People decide who Jesus is. We have our first therefore. John 11, verse 45. So what are, uh, what are you going to do about Jesus? Okay, one response is to believe. 
In verse 45, it says, Therefore, because of what happened, because Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, who came to mourn with her over the death of her brother Lazarus, and saw what he, Jesus, had done, believed in him. So how did the people respond to this miracle? In verse 45, it says that many believed in Jesus. As I read this verse, the one word that really surprised me, I don't know if it surprises you as well, but the one word that surprises me is the word many. I would have thought that if you see someone being raised from the dead, that it would not have said many, but it, it would have said that all the people who saw what Jesus had done believed in him. But as we shall see in John 11, that even if there's this miraculous healing, even if someone is raised from the dead, not everyone will put their faith in Jesus, the one who did the healing. Okay, so some people believe, but what about the rest of the people? Okay, point number two. Jesus continues to face opposition. Our second therefore, verses uh, John 11, 46 and 47. So what are people going to do about Jesus? Second response, not believe, unbelief. Verse 46 says, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, did these people go to the Pharisees and evangelize them and try to convince them to believe in Jesus? Okay, probably not. They might have been actually upset, like, there goes Jesus doing something that's disrupting everyone again. And so they went to these people, the Pharisees, who were already against Jesus and who already wanted to kill him. And so upon hearing the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, what do the Pharisees do? Okay, let's get verse 47. It says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. The chief priests, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, gathered together the council known as the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin were the rulers of Israel. And as these rulers of the people of Israel gathered together, they asked themselves a question. In verse 47 it says, what are we doing? It's like, what, are, what should we do? What are we going to do about Jesus? As I read this, I'm thinking, well, one thing they could have done was believe in him, okay? But they didn't want to do that. Though they seemed to recognize that Jesus was indeed doing these miracles, they didn't, seem to, they didn't seem to be willing to change their view of him. So why didn't the members of this council, the Sanhedrin, believe in Jesus? Okay, look at verse 48. It says, If we let him, if we let Jesus go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. As I looked at this passage, as I thought about um, what's been read so far, there are, I think there are three things that the, the Jewish leaders were concerned with, at least three things. One, they were concerned about who Jesus claimed to be and what he was doing. They were concerned about what he claimed to be and what he was doing. Second, it seemed like they were concerned and probably envious, too, of the people who would believe and follow Jesus instead of listening to them. And third, it also seems that they were even more concerned about their own status. They're even more concerned about their own status, 
position, authority, influence, and how they were seen in the eyes of the people. And with all this, the possible loss of all of that if they didn't do something. They could lose all these things if they didn't do something. So basically, I think they were concerned about their own self-interest. For the Sanhedrin, these leaders of Israel, Jesus threatened the status quo. Jesus was a threat to how things had been and how they lived their lives. It seems from their response that they were not looking at the situation based on what was right or what could be the truth, that they were, but they were only trying to determine things by how they would be affected. So they weren't looking at, can this be right? Can this be true? No, it's more like, how does this affect us? In a sense, the issue of unbelief was not an issue of lack of information or lack of seeking out the truth. It was a heart issue, a heart that was not open to what God was doing, and instead, a selfish, self-centered heart. So, what were they going to do about Jesus? Okay, point number three. Jesus going to the cross is part of God's plan. Now, the Sanhedrin's plan was to catch Jesus and to get rid of him by killing him. Let's look at John 11, uh, 49 through 53. It says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own, initi in, on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that ye might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Okay, John Piper, a popular um, pastor, author, uh, says this about this passage, this portion of the passage. He says, Caiaphas prophesied. In other words, God brought these words to mind. God put them there, and God has a meaning. At one level, these are Caiaphas's words with his meaning. And at another level, these are God's words with his meaning. So what did Caiaphas mean? So Caiaphas probably felt that the solution would be to kill Jesus, get rid of him by killing him, as it says in verse 43. He probably figured that by sacrificing Jesus, the nation would be spared. With Jesus dead, Caiaphas probably felt that their problems would be gone. No more worries about Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, the one sent from God. No more miraculous healings, all of which got people stirred up and, look, and had people look away um, from them, and they became loyal to Jesus instead. So they felt threatened over their influence and authority would be taken by the people, from the people, from them to Jesus. And with, the, uh, and with order among the people, the Roman government would not bother them. Their nation would be preserved, and they'd be able to continue on as usual as the rulers of Israel. So that's what they might have thought, what Caiaphas might have thought. 
But what did God mean by these prophetic words? God probably meant, or God meant, that Jesus would die as the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The words that John shared, John the Baptist shared in John 1.29, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But not only would Jesus die, he'd also be resurrected and then reign as a triumphant Son of God. Let's move on to verse 52, says this, And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What was prophesied about the children of God who were scattered being gathered together was spoken about by Jesus earlier in John 10, 16. Okay, John 10, 16 says this, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The children of God who are scattered abroad are the ones also spoken of about in Revelation 5, who are from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. Revelation 5, 9 to 10 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So, so God's plan for Jesus' life and death went far beyond the people of Israel. The children of God included people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which includes you and me as well, to be part of God's kingdom and his family. So let's look again at the Sanhedrin's plan. Okay, John eleven fifty five to 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the festival at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So knowing that the feast of the Passover was coming up soon and figuring that most likely Jesus was going to show up at this, at this uh, Passover feast, the chief priests and the Pharisees gave orders to everyone that if anyone knew where he was, they were, reported, they were to tell them and so that they can seize him, they can capture him. So when I was reading about this, I was thinking, well, there's a sense of peer pressure, or pressure in this case by the leaders. Earlier in the Gospel of John, it was said that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. So the people already knew peer pressure. The people already knew the pressures that they had. If they didn't follow what the leaders said to do, there could be consequences. One, they'd be put out of the synagogue, which also meant they would lose fellowship with people as well. So what was the, Jesus, what were, so what was the Jewish leader's plan? It was to get the people, or at least someone, to turn against Jesus so that they could catch him. After they catch Jesus, 
the plans of the chief priests and the Pharisees was to get rid of Jesus, to kill him. It's interesting, and as we go through this Jesus road to the cross, that even before he's arrested, it seems like the verdict and the plan of the Jewish leaders regarding what they want to do with him has already been decided, and that's to kill him. But let's look now at what are Jesus' plans. Because it's God's plan that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross and to take away the sins of the people, the events of Jesus going to the cross will happen according to God's timing and not in people's timing. Let's look at John 11, verse 54. It says, Therefore, because Jesus knew of their plan, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So God's plan was for Jesus to die, but it would happen in God's timing. So Jesus went to Ephraim, the city about 12 miles from Jerusalem. To quote John Piper again, he writes this, The death of Jesus was not mainly a tragic set of events which God turned for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned for our good. God himself served the death warrant on his own son. He did not just predict it. He unleashed it. The word of prophecy tracked Jesus down into Gethsemane and put him under arrest. This, there was no escape. This was the word of God. It, was be it is better that he die. So what have we seen in John 11 regarding Jesus' road to the cross? Okay, one, as Jesus spoke about who he is and about the kingdom of God and did things like miracles and healings, people chose to believe or not believe in who he is. And the same is true today as people hear about Jesus. Okay, second, Jesus continued to face opposition. And as we'll see, he'll continue to face even more opposition. Third, okay, third point, Jesus going to the cross is part of God's plan. Jesus spoke about it, and he'll speak about it more in the Gospel of John. And it was prophesied about in, in our passage today. And number four, the events of Jesus going to the cross will happen according to God's timing and not in people's timing. So I want to ask you the question that I asked at the beginning or that has been coming up over and over is that what are you going to do about Jesus? What are you going to do about Jesus? And as I thought about this question, I, thought, I also thought about what are some factors that contribute or influences us in deciding how we're going to ask, answer this question? What are things that sort of play into making a decision? Okay, one is that will we determine who Jesus is by his words and his actions or just by the opinions of others? Okay, will we look to Jesus? Will we look to Christ as we have been talking about in the last nine weeks. Second, is this going to be God's plan or my plan? Which will it be as we determine what to do? Will it be God's plan or my plan? Are we open to God's plan for our lives or do we only want to do our plans? Will we be Savior-centered or self-centered? 
Savior-centered or self-centered? Okay, number three, what is the condition of our heart? Are we open and willing to do what God wants us to do and what he wants for us, even if it's out of our comfort zone and is different from what we had in mind or planned to do? Or, no matter what the truth of God is or how he might direct us, are our hearts closed to him? So what's the condition of our hearts? Open to God or closed to God? Okay, number four, how do we respond to peer pressure in deciding what to do? How do we respond to peer pressure in deciding what to do? Which is greater, our fear of God or fear of people? Whose opinion matters the most, God's or people's? Do we decide what to do based on what God says or what people will say? Do we give in to peer pressure? Proverbs 29:25 says this. It says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Now, when I'm talking about peer pressure, it's not just peer pressure. It's people trying to tell you to do something not good, to do something against um, what, what God would want you to do. But peer pressure can even be something like, you know, God wants you to do something, but you give in to, oh man, what will people think? Maybe God is asking you, I want you to lead worship in your branch. I want you to um, lead a small group. I want you to be a part of the, the SBS or the Adventure Week leadership and, and, and to help be a part of the, the people that help. And the peer pressure might be, or even the pressures that we put on ourselves might be, oh, I can't do that because uh, what will someone think? They'll, they'll know that I'm not, you know, I'm not a perfect person and I make mistakes. Or, or they might think, or, or you might think, oh, I don't want to do that because what if I don't do it good enough? Or you might think, well, I can't do it as good as so-and-so, so I shouldn't do it. We give into the pressure, whether it's peer pressure, even pressure on ourselves to do something good that God's calling us to do because we're discounting who we are maybe or what God is actually wanting us to do. So peer pressure or self-pressure. Or do we listen to God and his opinion and what he wants us to do above what anyone else says or even what we think of ourselves that we say yes to God regarding that? So what are you and I going to do about Jesus? Are we going to believe in him or not? Are we going to include him in our lives or not? Are we going to include him in our lives in only part of our lives? Maybe 10% of our life? Or 51% because it's a little bit more than, you know, halfway? Or 83.25% of our lives? Or will we include him in 100% of our lives? Now, I know we don't always do that perfectly, but are we striving? Are we desiring to include God in every part of our lives? Are we going to follow Jesus and do what, do what he asks us to do, even if it's out of our comfort zone? even when we know that he's with us and, and will help us. So we might know that, God, you're always with me. You give me you've given us the Holy Spirit. He's going to help me. Even if we know that, will we still be willing to say yes to, to Jesus? So what are you and I going to do about Jesus? Okay, back to Magos and the four spiritual laws. So when my friend at this place I worked at, this fast food place, shared about Jesus 
with me. The first time I said no, I had my own plans for my life. But around maybe six months, five, six months later, after some other ventures that I got involved with, I was checking, I was looking for a meaning and purpose in my life. And when I went to college, I tried these different groups that I thought would help do that. When these groups really didn't bring fulfillment or satisfaction, I called my friend and I asked him again to tell me about Jesus. And so he came over to my house. He went through, he brought his yellow booklet. He went through the booklet again. He asked if I wanted to pray the prayer to accept Jesus. And I said, yes. That was back on November the 23rd, 1973. It was a Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, I remember. But do you know that even though I prayed that prayer to receive Jesus into my life as my Lord and Savior during my freshman year of college, the same question keeps coming up. What am I going to do about Jesus? It's still something that I have to answer every day. Not in regards to my salvation. No, not in regards to my salvation. Jesus is my Savior. But more in regards to Jesus being the Lord of my life, to Jesus being the Lord of every area of my life. Sometimes, even as I was looking at this passage, sometimes I see myself like the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, being more concerned about my plans and with what I want to do rather than saying yes to God and his plans of what he wants me to do. Sometimes I see myself wanting to take the easy, comfortable, and convenient route rather than being open to the more that God might have for me. Being more concerned about what others think than about what God thinks. <clears throat> but I realize that when I give myself and my life fully to God, and when I say yes to God, when he asks me to do something, something that's out of my comfort zone or some, something that was out of the, my, the plans that I had, I find that, well, when he, when he asks me to do things, okay, like when he asks me to do things out of my comfort zone that were in my plans, like going to a different country on a mission trip, trying to play the guitar and lead worship at our branch, speaking in front of a large group of people, or even just saying yes, saying yes to God in the small and not outwardly visible things that he asked me to do. I find that saying yes to God and doing these things is an opportunity to see God work in and through my life. I see it as an opportunity to grow in my relationship with, with the Lord and to trust him with different areas of my life. I see it as an opportunity to see his love, acceptance, peace, presence, and help in my life is real. And then, yes, that he is always with me. And to see it as an opportunity to experience the full and abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. 10. There's one more thing I want to share um, before I end this message. You know, when, um, when Pastor Rocky accepted being the senior pastor of this church, the next senior pastor of this church after Pastor Corey retired, I remember hearing a lot of people saying, wow, what, you know, that's great that he would even consider leaving, uh, coaching the National Football League and becoming the pastor here at church. What a great step of faith 
And it is, and it was, a great step of faith. Um, but I feel that, I felt like the Lord is saying that this is not an isolated event. That seeing Rocky do what he did and Charlotte and their kids take the step of faith was not just for them, but the Lord says it's for us as well. It's for us that he wants us to see also. He wants us to be able to, to, to take these steps of faith. That saying yes to him it's for all of us. It's not supposed to be some rare occurrence for just a few people that follow Jesus. It's for all of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior and made him the Lord of our lives. It's for all of us to be open to God, to hear his voice, to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and to step out in faith as the Lord leads us. It's for all of us to be able to say, yes, Lord, and step out in faith. So, the same question again. What are you and I going to do about Jesus? What are you and I going to do about Jesus? The thing that came to mind as I was writing this is say, yes, Lord, yes. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you that you... Give us opportunities to put our faith and trust in you. You give us opportunities to know you in a ways that are beyond our imagination. That you give us a way to know you so that we can live our lives the way that you desire us to live, a full and abundant life. Lord, I pray for those of us who have some fears about taking steps of faith, whether it's to believe in Jesus whether it's to say yes to something that you're asking us to do, Lord, I pray that you will help us, encourage us to know that you're with us. To encourage us that this is a way that you want us to have, that you want us to be the men and women of God that you desire us to be, that this is the way that you want us to live the full and abundant life that you talked about in your word. So, Lord, I just commit ourselves to you. I commit our church family to you. Lord, may, may we be a people of faith. May we be a people who, as we see the road to the cross that you took, that you, as you demonstrated your trust in God, as you demonstrate the love of God, that we'll be a people who receive that love from you, who are able to share that with others, to live again, as the people that you desire us to be, that we can glorify you with all that we do. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.